My name is Viking, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm doing that because Bob gave his last name, and the tradition is at a level of press radio and film. And you people saved my life, so I want you to know my last name, for God's sake. If any, if any of you... If any of you represent the press, the radio, film, or television, please don't use my last name. All the good alcoholics can use my last name. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to jump around a little bit because so much has happened since 4.30 when I was here that I have to. But having Tricia come up and get a book for three days sobriety just triggered something in me that I had not thought about for years. In uh, 1974, uh, I, my, I had my 10th birthday on January 14th, and uh, in April of that year, we had, in those years, we had a Milano Club in San Francisco, and I was sitting up, uh, we had two tables that had signs hanging down, said uh, hospitality table, but everybody regarded them as a hostility table because that's where we sat with all the newcomers, you know, that had lots of hostility. So I was sitting at the hostility table with a, with a young fellow who had, uh, had, uh, I had not seen before. And, um, and the desk came over and said, can somebody at the table volunteer to go uh, up to the St. Francis Hotel? There's a man uh, in one of the rooms up there that's been holed up in the room for four days. And he's coming off it, but he's really been in bad shape. He's been doing nothing but drinking up there. Wouldn't let anybody in, and he had his own supply, so we couldn't stop him drinking. This was the manager that they called central office. So would uh, you have somebody go up and visit him? He's called for somebody from AA. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll go. And uh, uh, I worked only two blocks down, and I said, I'll go. And I grabbed this young guy next to me. And I said, uh, come on, we're going to get a cab and go over to St. Francis Hotel. And he said, I don't have any money to pay for a cab. I said, cool it, you know. We'll take care of that. I said, uh, come on with me. And so on the way over the cab, I said to him, how many days sobriety do you have? Uh, how long have you been sober? That's the way I phrased it. How long have you been sober? And he says, two days. And I said, boy, nice going, Silas, you know. You uh, you're going on a 12-step call with a real drunk, and you've got to die two days sober. I said, I've been really pickled. So we went in the lobby, and the manager said, are you guys for me? And we said, yes. And we went up, and we knocked on the door, and he said, it's open. Come on in. We went in. It was just like the rooms I had been in, you know, 10 years before. Full of cigar smoke and bottles all over the floor, and the man had urinated on himself, and it was terrible mess. The first thing I did was go in, pull the draperies back, and throw up the window, you know, to let some air in there. And then I pulled up a chair beside this man's uh, bed, and he was from New York, and he'd come in and gone on this monumental vendor. And uh, so I sat down and said, uh, have you gone to AA before? And he said, no. I said, well, you called for AA. He said, yeah, I, I think they, they can do something for me. And I said, I do too. If you're ready to surrender, I think so. We can help you. And he says, uh, how long have you been sober? And I said, 10 years. And uh, he was rolling his eyes back. You know, I'm really a sick cookie. So I started telling him how the program worked. And finally, after I was about five minutes into my share with him, 
about, about five, only about five minutes, he looked me right in the eye, he rolled his eye back, and he said, you're sober ten years? And I said, yeah. And he said, how much, how long has this guy sitting at the foot of the bed been sober? And I says, two days. And he looked back at me and he says, look, will you shut your mouth and let me, let him tell me how he stayed sober two days? So, Trisha, you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got something to share. You've got three days to share, you know. If you're sober today and you're working in a program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're a peer of ours, you know, and we don't have any gurus or bottoms. We're all right here, you know. We're all sober one day at, one day at a time. Uh, the reason I, we're sober one day at a time by the grace of God, and we know that, you know, we don't. It's not from book learning. It's, as Otis said, it's from down in the gut when you know you're one and you adopt this program. That's when it happens. So you could do that at six months. You could do that at three days. You could do it two years or whatever. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm one of these big speaker guys from, you know, San Francisco who knows more than you do because I've already met 50 people tonight who know more than I do. So I'm very clear about that. I've just been privileged to be invited by your committee up here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you, which I will proceed to do now. <laughs> um, I, this has been a wonderful millennium for me and a lot of self-revelation. I retired from the practice of law four years ago, and lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know where my, my life was going to go. I've got several hobbies, and I got into them. But also, being retired opened new vistas for me in AA. I got to be a member of the Public Information Committee. I had always had two, three, four uh, uh, newcomers I was sponsoring while I was going through. But now that I got time, you know, I take them as they come. And the last count, I had 14, which is which is sort of arrogant in a way, because they said I could be helping 14 guys at once. But they call and I answer and it doesn't impress me, so I'm going to keep right on doing it. And the big benefit of all this is uh, I get to stay sober every day, every day. And my sobriety is just absolutely wonderful. Like, like Otis was saying, you know, there's some kind of magic here. I don't know what it is. I turned 80 years old on December 28th. And a few days later, January 14th of the millennium, I got 36 years in the program, and I consider myself one of the one of the really uh, after my birthday, I sat down and started, and this really surprised me. I started writing down all of the things that have happened to me in the 36 years of sobriety, and you know, as the list got longer, I had the sudden awareness that all of it was a gift of grace. Had nothing to do with me. Had nothing. The only thing I brought to the table was the willingness to stay with Alcoholics Anonymous and not leave and do what I could. I never knew it, even if it was the right thing or not or whether I was doing the right thing. I just kept coming back. And you'll see how important that is for me. You know, as Otis had the courage to use his cup, 
I'm not fooling with any cup because you've seen me hit this thing three times. And I, first thing I do is hit that cup, you know. So uh, I got something I can seal up here in between gulps. <laughs> um, I uh, I've got uh, so much to say that I'm not going to give a long drunk log tonight because uh, I'm very impressed with what I've heard so far, and I want to share as much as I can about the program. Uh, but I have to qualify, and to qualify, I want to tell you that uh, uh, it'll all be encapsulated in just one big event. On January 14, 1964, I came to in a motel room. I had no idea where I was, not the foggiest. I did, I had reached the point that every alcoholic of my type reaches if he keeps drinking, and that is that the whole year of 1963, without one single exception, every time I took touch an alcoholic beverage, a beer or a glass of wine or a martini, anything I drank with alcohol in it, I could not stop. I would go into oblivion every single time. And now, you know, that is pure insanity. I knew exactly what was setting me off, but I couldn't stop doing it. And man, was I, I was really beside myself. I was running to psychiatrists and psychologists and doing everything that I could think to do to, to uh, do, get on top of it. You know, I could see my life going down the tubes. If I kept this up, I was going to lose my practice. I was going to lose my, well, I'd already, my ex-wife was already divorcing me. We had a 14-year-old daughter, and she said, uh, she said, I'm not going to let our daughter come in. She lived in Menlo Park. She said, I'm not going to let our daughter come in and have lunch with you. She says, that would be crazy. She said, if, if you had a glass of wine, would Maya end up in Philadelphia? And man, I thought she was, she was a terrible woman, you know. But, you know, it dawned on me she was 100% right. Because I was going into the, into the pass out or blackout phase immediately. Two or three hours. You know, one or two drinks like this and then the bottle in the, in the mouth to get banged right, right away. So I was a corner. So I came to in this motel room, and I sat up on the bed and shook my head a couple of times. I, first sober breath, the first thing I had happened in three days I'd been in there that I could even think about anything. You know, I'd just been a straight drunk right through. As soon as I'd start to come through, I'd grab the bottle and go back into the do oblivion. And so I shook my head and did what any alcoholic does. What's next? Grab those bottles all over the floor and see if it's just a little bit in there to get well. You know, just something stopped shaking so bad. Nothing. The bottles were even clean. I'd been apparently sticking them under the bathtub spigot and rinsing them out so I could get the last drops so that I was about to run out, you know. So uh, I uh, sat there for a few minutes and I, I looked in through the bathroom door and there was a bathtub in there. And I thought that was some kind of an omen, you know. Bathtub in a motel. Rare thing. Uh-oh. This is it. You know, this is it. You've been doing this for over a year, and you're a first-class loser. There's no way you're going to get out of this life alive. And it's going to happen to you anyway. You're going to, you're going to get drunk in one of these blackouts and wander in the, into the streets and get hit by a truck or a car 
or a Lincoln Continental or something. I don't care what it was, you know. You're going to get hit by something, or you're going to grab a handful of pills and wash it down with a beer. So you're going to die anyway. Why don't you do it by your own hand while you're ready to go? And it sounds like the best idea I'd had all all sixty-three. This nine to sixty-four. I could see it coming, and so I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in the bathtub, take a razor blade, and cut my throat and bleed to death in that bathtub. And uh, lo and behold, I had no razor blade. Because <laughs> I didn't pack little overnight chips or anything, you know. I just took a drink, and there I would be in some place like that. And so uh, I started looking all over the place for something to do the job with. You know, anything to do the job. I couldn't find a thing. There was one United States steel coat hanger in there. And that sucker was really made in those days. You know, they made them like, like the, the last. So I took that coat hanger and I kept trying to bend it out so the prong would stick out. You know, I don't know what I would have done with it. You know, what, what flashed through my mind was if I stuck it up my butt and janked hard, I could... I could plead the death through that orifice, you know. But I couldn't get it twisted. <laughs> to jump forward for a minute, I was sober three days. I, I'll tell you that part, how I got sober. I was sober three days, and a fellow named Dicko, who's still around, he's got six months on me. And man, did I, did I hang on to him. You know, he had been sober six months, and here I am at three days. Trisha. And so he said, I told him that, and he said, he said, signs, God, you weren't thinking, were you? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you had all those bottles on the floor, all you had to do was take one and crack it, and you'd have a sharp instrument to do the G. And I said, damn, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> now I know why, you know, the power was there. I'd already surrendered to my alcoholism. Now, the next step was to get it. That guy was wonderful for me right away, you know, wasn't it, for those first few days. After another couple of days, we were having a hamburger there, and I said to him, you know, Jake, I said, for now almost a year, I've had this feeling of impending doom. I said, God, it just hangs over me like a black cloud, impending doom all the time. I said, what is that feeling? And Dick said, impending doom. <laughs> So I thought that was a profound statement. <laughs> but back back to the motel room, I I fell across the bed just screaming to the top of my lungs, you know. I gotta die, I have to die today in this room. I am not gonna leave this room alive. There's nothing out there for me. I've done everything I could think about. Nothing is there. Nothing at all. So just do it. Do it. Do it. You'll relieve your partners of their anxiety, and you'll you'll certainly be a there'll be a reward for your ex-wife. So, so just do it. Just, that's all you have to do. Just do it, and do it. Find some way to die. You've got can't leave this room alive. And I was crying and screaming, and I slid off the bed onto my knees by the bed, and uh, there's telephone there. And to this day, I well, I can't know what was in my mind, but I reached for the phone, and I know I didn't know who I was going to call, but I said, uh, I said, get me AA. And I've got several theories about where I'd heard AA, but I'm not going to stop for that, you know. Some did pick it up. Some, some consciousness 
had put into my mind AA, and I called AA. And the first big miracle was the switchboard operator said, said, yes, sir, can I help you? And I said, please get me AA. And she said, oh, thank God. And she said, she said, Sacramento or San Francisco? Well, I discovered I was in Sacramento. No idea where I was. So I said, I'm from San Francisco. Put me through to San Francisco. So she put me through, and it was just after opening time of the central office down on, was then on Gary Street in San Francisco. And uh, Harriet came on the phone and said, uh, uh, what's the matter, Silas? I told her my name, and she, I said, well, I'm trying to commit suicide. I said, I absolutely cannot stop drinking, no matter what I do. And, you know, my partners hate me, and I can't even see my daughters, and my ex-wife uh, is suing me for a divorce. And I said, even in my favorite bar, the Bonanza Bar, I said, when I go in the front door, three or four of the old-timers leave by the rear door. And I said, the ungrateful bastards, I said, I even bought them drinks. And, and so I was moaning and crying and self full of self-pity, you know, really, really into it. And I kept going on. And finally, Harriet said to me, she said, Silas, she says, listen to me. I want to tell you something. And she told me her story over the telephone. And I was sick as a dog, but I still remember the reaction I had to this woman telling me her story. You see, all of these experts I had been to didn't seem to comprehend what was going on, the psychiatrists and the doctors. And this woman, was worse, my, her story was worse than mine. I couldn't believe. I thought, in my arrogance, I thought I was the only one who had ever suffered like this. And here this woman was telling it just like, just like my story was. And man, was I impressed. She really got my attention. And, uh, and I, years later, I finally got around to reading the prefaces, the early parts of these, uh, these forwards. And here it is, the forward to the third edition. And I really love this because it captures the very spirit of AA. They start out by saying that this is in 1976. AA has one million members, 28,000 groups, meeting in over 90 countries. And, uh, and that was in 1976. Of course, it's two million, whatever now. But what it says down here, in 1999, there are over 98,000 groups instead of 28,000. And it's estimated that there are over two million people. But here's what, what it says is really important to me. In spite of the great increase in size and span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. So that's the way it starts, folks. You know, it starts with one of us talking to another. And, you know, that, that was what was impressing me because for the doctors here and the psychiatrists and the experts in the field of recovery addiction, uh, I have great respect for you, and this is just my story. I love the doctors that I meet now in AA and the ones that I see professionally. I have no problem with it at all. But at that time, it just seemed to me that every time I went 
a psychiatrist or a medical doctor. They were up here, like on, on the throne, and I was down there. And this is all in my mind, of course. And they were looking at me and saying, "You worm! If you had any, if you had any guts, any willpower, you wouldn't be in this mess." Now I know that that's wrong. I know they were good men trying to help. I'm fully aware of that, so I have changed completely from that. But at that time, when Harriet shared her story, and I got down there that day and started talking to her, uh, I could not get on the level where they could do me any good because everything froze when I put that judgment into my mind. But I still know to this day, as much as those people knew, and as wonderful as they were, not one of them ever said to me, oh yes, I pissed in my pants too. Not one of them. And I had to hear that from somebody. And Harriet was telling me that, and she was a woman. So, uh, so I was really impressed by that. And uh, she gave me explicit instructions of how to get down to her office. And I went down there, January 14, 1964. You can look it up in the almanac. It was pouring rain that day. And I was living in a little apartment, just a little uh, studio apartment up on the side of Telegraph Hill. And so she said, I talked to her for about an hour, and she gave me the big book, told me the big book. And she said, there's a meeting tonight at Tuesday downtown on Push Street. She says, be there. She said, there's a beginner's meeting at 7.30, and the regular meeting is 8.30. Can you get there by yourself? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to go take a shower and get cleaned up. She said, you should, because I, I had been doing all those things. You know, I had three days growth of beard. And I went up, and I took three showers after I left her, and I put on my very best dudes, man. I mean, I my good stuff. My Brooks Brothers suit with the vest, you know, my Cole Hahn loafers. You know, I was really, I, I just kept bathing until I got really cleaned up. Nice, fresh shave, and I went up there. Uh, caught a cab and got there in the rain. There's a little guy standing on the door who was the greeter. I didn't know anything about it. Hey, and I ran in out of the rain up there, and uh, Harry uh, looked at me and he said, You look new. <laughs> And I said, well, this, these are pretty nice clothes, mister. And he said, it's not important. He says, go two seats on the front row. One of them is yours and the other is mine. I'm greeting people. I'll be with you shortly. So he came in and sat down. And uh, Harry was a gift from God. I can't say that I ever liked him. Uh, he, but he had my number. I was 44 years old. I was an a-hole lawyer who knew everything, you know, and I was looking at those steps and immediately all that stuff was going through my head, you know, about uh, some of this was not necessary, you know, uh, really couldn't see how it was going to affect me, but I loved that first meeting. The guy who shared, I identified with completely, you know, just completely, everything he said. He just told my story, and I had my big, big book with me. And so Harry, at the end of the meeting, Harry said, let's go over and have a cup of coffee at the Atlanta Club. So we went over to the hostility table and, and sat down, and he says, I'll be your temporary sponsor. And I said, great, what's the sponsor? And he says, you'll find out. He says, now, first, 
order of business, he says, can you take step one? And I read it, and I said, wow, I sure can. That, that nailed me right there. I, absolutely, my life is unmanageable, and I'm a hopeless, helpless alcoholic. He says, good, if you can do that, you got 50% of the battle won. So I didn't know what he meant, of course, but I said, great. So then he said, I want you to go to a meeting every day, two meetings a day if you can, and I want you to report to me by phone every day. And he kept saying to me the next few days, uh, you done step two? And I said, uh, what's step two? Well, isn't a book there? And he was real mean. He, uh, he, he really didn't respect my learning, or my, my position, or any of the rest of it. He was always on me, you know. So finally we met for lunch one day, and he says, now about step two. He says, just came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. You've already admitted you're insane, didn't you? I said, yes. He says, okay, there's some power. If it's just AA, that's okay, Silas. Just, just admit it. And I said, you mean right now? He said, well, right now. Say it. So he says, you're a little slow. I'll break it down for you. Yeah. Always a dig like that, you know, about my intelligence. So I said it, and he says, you've taken step two. Now he said, now I want you to read the part about uh, three, right after the chapter five that we read, where it says, after the fortune chapter five, where it says, we're now at step three. I want you to get that in your mind firmly, okay? So then three days later, now it's about the third week, about three days later, uh, I saw him again. And at this time I saw him, there was another sponsor with the same time, time that Harry had in the program and his sponsee. So the, his sponsee was saying, this guy's sponsee was saying, well, you know, I've I never to drink. And I love these meetings. I love to go to the meetings, you know. And he says, got to do sex, all of them. And I said, Harry, how come you insist on that? And we were in this group, you know, and he said, because you'll get drunk. Simple answer, you'll get drunk if you don't do these steps. And the other guy said, the other newcomer, relative newcomer said, yeah, he says, you know, I get a lot out of the meetings too. He says, uh, he says uh, I can't, uh, can't see the deal of getting into all of this stuff like this. And his sponsor said to him, when we were four of us were standing there, he said, listen, nuthead, to his So I found somebody else insulted their sponsor. <laughs> so he says, tell me this. He said, if you sit in your garage for 90 days, are you going to turn into a sober, if you turn into a Chevrolet? And he says, well, of course not. I'm not going to turn into a Chevrolet. And he says, well, what makes you think you're going to sit in AA meetings for 90 days and turn into a sober alcoholic? He says, it's not going to happen. You will get a lot of hugs and you get a lot of good fellowship. And if you stay sober, it's okay. But you're not going to solve your alcohol problem unless you get into those steps. So we walked around went right out. And Harry said, now, we went to lunch in the Jack's restaurant. And so we were sitting across from each other. And Harry said, now we're going to take the third step. And I said, here? In this restaurant? And he says, yes, in this restaurant. He says, I'm getting tired of fooling with you. He says, what we're going to do is take the third step right now. He says, as I told you before, you're slow. So I want you to repeat after me. And I'm going to break it down. He says, I want you to say, made a decision. I said, you know, I've got three weeks and it's white in my eyes. And I said to him, I can handle one sentence, damn it. 
one complete sentence, and he says, look, don't get so hostile. He says, you've got to do these things to stay sober. You have to do them to stay sober. So I'm just helping you to stay sober. And I said, well, you know, uh, I've told you half a dozen times that I'm an agnostic. And I said, in my opinion, this third step is just another sort of call to return to religion. That's what it's really all about. And he says, give me that again. And I said, what? He said, give me that statement again. And now the waiters are looking. And I'm really embarrassed. And I said, well, I, it's just kind of like religion. No, I want you to tell me what you said. And I said, uh, well, I finally stumbled out. I said, well, in my opinion, this is like religion. He says, have you been reading that book? And I said, of course I've been reading the book. Well, he says, you've been reading the first 164 pages? And I said, yes, I've been reading parts of it every day. And he says, is there any place in there where it says I've got to listen to your opinion? <laughs> he says, this tells you how to stay sober. It's not a matter of your opinion. He says, now you're going to get drunk? And I said, no, I'm not going to get drunk. He says, okay, we're going to do the third step right now. So then I, I said that he said it, and I said the whole of the third step. He made a decision to turn our will, our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I said, he says, you've now taken the third step. you got to get busy on the fourth step. I said, wait a minute, Harry, wait a minute. We're going awful fast here. I said, how do you know I wasn't lying? I said, how do you know I really took that step? He said, you told me. And I said, but, you know, I'm only sober about three or four weeks. I said, how do you know I, I don't have reservations? And he said, look, I don't give a damn what you had. I don't give a damn about any of your reservations. I tell you, you've taken third, the third step with your sponsor in Jack's restaurant on February 10th, 1964, whatever it was. And he says, write that down. He says, the meetings, I don't, I don't go with you. I hear you're blabbing all the time uh, about how great you are. So he says, you tell all those people you took, took the third step with your sponsor at Jack's restaurant. Tell them that and give them my phone number and I'll verify it. I thought, man, what an organization. You know, they don't care if you lie. They, uh, they take your word for anything like this. He says, I said, man, this is really serious. And then Harry said, though, the sense was, he says, what does it say in the big book about the third step? And I said, I don't know, Harry, what does it say? He said, open your book. So I opened it. He said, now read that to me. And what he read was, you know, that this vital and important step is vital to our sobriety, but it is useless unless immediately, it says, immediately followed by a searching and fearless moral inquiry. So he says, you see, it's no good at all unless you keep going doing with the steps. So I said, okay. So I started, <laughs> oh my God, I started working on that inventory. And every day the phone would ring. Where are you on the inventory? And I would say, I'm on some resentment. Well, keep working. How much time are you putting on it? And I said, Oh, about an hour a day. Well, increase it to two hours. I said, but I'm busy. I've got my marbles back, and I'm practicing law. Well, forget it till you finish the fourth step, he says. Just to tell everybody you're off for two weeks and finish that step. So I got it all through, and I, it was so terrible. I said, my God, I'm not going to have Harry 
know all this stuff about me. And I said, uh, uh, I'm going to pick a, a lawyer I had met, you know, a member of my profession who would be secret. So I went up to his office in the, in the uh, uh, Rust Building, and he had this beautiful view of the bay. And he said, okay, let's get started. I'm not going to say anything. You just tell me your fifth step, and we'll get moving. And he turned around, looking out over the bay. And he was very quiet. And I finally, you know, the suspicious legal mind, I went around and looked at him, and he went to sleep. <laughs> and I grabbed him and shook him. And I said, you spoil my fifth step. And, and Chevis said, uh, said, I just bought your fifth step. What are you talking about? I said, well, you fell asleep, and I'd only gone for about 15 minutes. I have at least an hour and a half more to go. And he said, well, good. I said, that's fine. Go right ahead. He said, he says, it's okay with me. Go right ahead. That's what you're here for, to do this. And I said, yeah, but you've got to be awake to hear this. He said, where did you discover that? He said, where does it say in the big book or in the 12 and 12 that the sponsor uh, the person taking the fifth step has to be awake. <laughs> Show me where that is. Well, that was not very satisfactory for me, so I thought, if this guy is going to be that loose, I'm going to go back to Harry. So I went, <laughs> I went back to Harry, and Harry, Harry uh, took me through the remainder of the steps. And I've got, uh, got something vital I've got to share before my time is up, and i only got 15 minutes to do it, uh, 10 minutes maybe. And I want to get to this because this was the quantum leap for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I finished the steps with Harry, and the last one I will never forget. He, uh, we were jointly doing a 12-step call, and he said, "Well, it must feel pretty good now that we got all the way all the way through this." And he said, "Remember, I'm your sponsor. Anytime you have any trouble with the steps or the program, call me, and we'll we'll get mellowing, you know." And I thought that was good. He was improving. And I helped him improve. <laughs> so uh, he says, anything wrong? I said, no, nothing at all. And he says, you must have some question. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, about uh, that 12th step, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, uh, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. I said, you know, Harry, I've been working very hard at this, and I haven't had a spiritual awakening. Wrong, wrong, wrong thing to say. Because he was a little guy and he'd get mad and a vein would stand out and just drop. And I thought, oh man, I'm in deep again, you know. What set him off this time? And he said, what do you mean you haven't had a spiritual awakening? And I said, well, I don't, I haven't had it. And he says, didn't you work those, all those steps with me? Haven't we worked on them together all the way through? I tell you, you've taken those steps. I said, well, yes, we, we took those steps. And he says, well, can't you read? He says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. You've had one. He says, can I help it if you're too stupid to know that you've had a spiritual awakening? <laughs> well, that was the last straw. <laughs> he had told me earlier he was moving to Oakland, and I was so thankful he was going to Oakland. But I needed everything Harry gave me all the way through. Well, I want to fast forward here so I can finish up on time about the most significant event so far 
in my entire sobriety. In 1979, I was sober 15 years, and in April, uh, it was a, you know, a big gash in 79, and I had, uh, we had a Volvo station wagon, and I had thought, misjudged the distance we were going to go to Lake Tahoe, so I had a five-gallon can of gas put in the back of the thing. And so uh, my wife said, we made it all right up and back without using it. And she was using it to transport our sons. So she says, Silas, Sunday afternoon, she says, you've got to get that gas out of the back of the car. I don't want it in the car with the boys with me. And I said, okay, I'll do it. I had on shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops, you know. And I went out, and sure enough, it was, it was, I had a leaded gas container with a leaded gas uh, pourer, and this was, this was, Bobo took uh, unleaded gas. So I had to go next door and borrow my neighbor's gas can, and I came back and opened the garage door, and I was standing pouring that gas through a funnel in the middle of my garage with nobody in the garage. And all of a sudden, I looked up and there was a fireball coming towards me, and it hit me. You know, this huge fireball, taller than I was. The gas had, the fumes of the gas had been sucked into the furnace, and this fireball came out. And of course, what I did was I dropped the can and spilled it all over me, so I was a flaming torch. And I would have died on the spot had it not been for my oldest son, who was a Boy Scout and had burn training in the Boy Scouts, you know. He grabbed me and wrapped me in a blanket the minute he saw it happen. And uh, his his younger brother was there, too, Tony, my second son. And he was yelling to Tony, get his legs, Tony, get his legs, I'll wrap him to the head. So fortunately, we had blankets and stuff down there they could wrap me. But they took me to San Francisco General Burn Unit. And for 10 days, I... I never knew what pain was. And I was in World War II, and I went through some stuff, but boy, this was something. If you ever burn the thing that you finger, you know what a burn feels like, you know. And I was so, so hurting, so bad, I couldn't even, I couldn't even read the headline. I didn't dare turn on the television. My poor brain was, had all it could do just to handle coping with that pain. And uh, I was in a room by myself, and uh, they were doing a whole bunch of stuff to me all day. One of which, you say, one of the modern burn things is they put you on a trolley type of thing and get you over the sheep dip and drop you in it. And it hurts so bad when you hit, you immediately pass out. So I remember very little about that, except the four nurses were scrubbing the burns with with brushes, you know. So it was just impossible. And uh, I was, I was really trying to die again. I was saying, i got to die. I can't take this pain. i got to die. And way back in my brain was kept coming up, talking about AA training, kept coming up, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. It sort of got to be a mantra, this too, this too shall pass. But, you know, it wasn't passing, and I was hurting. So on the 10th or 11th day, Evelyn and I can't figure out when it was, but this woman on the program, Evelyn, had uh, been assigned to the burn ward that day. She was not an official burn nurse, but she just came in because one of the burn nurses was up. She came in and greeted me, and she says, how are you? And I said, 
I'm in terrible pain. I said, I didn't even recognize you when you came in. And she said, well, I'll take good care of you. Don't worry now. And we've been in a lot of meetings together. Well, about an hour later, she comes to the door with this young guy in tow. And she says to me, Cy, Pat would like to talk to you. My big book was on the table, and, uh, and I thought to myself, she's out of her mind. Why in the hell would she do this to me? I can't talk to anybody. I can't even talk to my wife. You know, this pain is so great, I just can't talk to anybody. But somehow my arm went up and I waved this guy in. And he came in and he sat down on the head of my bed and I said, Okay, Pat, what's the trouble? And he told me what had happened to him. He had his arm all bandaged up. He went to the first AA meeting and heard the word God and decided it was a, some religious sect and went back out and hopped on his motorcycle and got one block away and spun around and set his bike on fire and burned his arm. So he was in for outpatient treatment for second-degree burns there. Well, I remember him telling me the story and what I told him about I was had been an agnostic to him. Don't worry about it. I said, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as what you believe doesn't matter. You know, what, what you really... What you really got to get is you got to do those steps in order to stay sober. So don't have that kind of mental block, you know. So we shared like that for a few minutes. And the next thing I knew, Evelyn was at the door. And she said, oh, my God, Pat. She says, Dr. Trunke's on his rounds. He was the burn surgeon. And she says, he'll kill me if he finds out I left you in here for an hour. And that was news to me. I didn't know he'd been in there now for an hour. And then she came and grabbed his good arm and started with him out through the, through the door. And, uh, and as the boots fit, the sound faded away, it hit me. It still really shakes me up when I tell this. I had had no pain for an hour. Now you explain that. How in the world did I just suddenly become normal talking to a drunk? I don't know. God has mysterious ways to show us what's really true in our lives. Two more minutes? Okay. And so uh, uh, what happened was that, uh, that uh, I said, to, she came running back in and said, uh, I'll go get more morphine. She says, I'll get you some morphine. Don't worry about it. She says, I'll, I'll do everything I can. Pain was coming back. And I said, wait a minute, don't you dare. And no more morphine. I said, get down to Mission Street and get me every drunk you can find. <laughs> and line them up. Line them up outside. And she says, you know I can't do that. She says, I can't do that. She says, but I'll have you a meeting. There's seven of us on duty on the floor. And she says, I'll have you a meeting in an hour. So in my room, we had a meeting every, every day, sometimes two a day, for whoever was on duty. I'm sure the hospital loved the fact that some of the employees were in there with me, all of them, helping me to, to stay sober. But... That was, that was what uh, had happened, and, uh, you know, I was so grateful, I just fell back on the bed, and I said, thank you, God, for showing me what the power really is like. Uh, just brief post to this thing. Uh, about a year later, I spoke up in Sacramento, and I went in, and it was a freeway accident, so I was a little bit late, and I came up on the podium like this, and there on the front row was Pat. I hadn't seen him in a year. So I stopped everything and ran down and hugged him and ran back up again. And I said, Pat, God, 
you know, I didn't know your last name. I couldn't get in touch with you. I said, God, I said, you saved my life in there. And he, I said, you've been sober the whole time? He said, yeah, I've been sober for a year. He says, I like the idea you had of the group being a higher power. So he says, everything, everything's worked out for me. But he said, wait a minute, you know, I've heard you, heard people say that you tell that story. I want to tell you something. He said, that damn nurse came down there and they were bandaging my arm. And she says, she says to me, I want you to talk to a dying man. And he says, I said to her, are you nuts? I'm not going to talk to a dying man. Are you out of your mind? And uh, she said, she said to me, listen, you ungrateful little wretch. She says, we brought you in here and we're bandaging up your arm for free. And you don't even have the courtesy to spend a few minutes with a dying man that you could help. So here I am not wanting the guy in the room. And here Pat is, doesn't want any part of it either. But God had other plans. You know, God said, I'm going to get these two jokers together and see how it works. So he did. And then, now I'm sorry, just one more thing. Uh, I spoke in Oakland last year, and uh, this was 79, you know, I spoke in Oakland last year, and I walked outside and big motorcycle drive guys grabbed me. And I went out, I thought, uh-oh, you know, is this going to be a motorcycle assault or something? And they pulled me over and they said, you know what happened? We were in a motorcycle AA meeting up in the low, low part of the Sierras, and he says, the principal speaker was this guy, Pat. And he says, he shared that part of the story. And he says, now, one week later, we hear your side of the story. And I said, how did they check out? He said, they check out perfectly. You're both sober. Pat was celebrating 20 years. The, uh, the coach is giving me signals from the bench, which I interpreted as saying, shut up and end it. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.